And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is the travel show in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. I'm Arthur Fromer. And I'm Pauline Fromer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be talking about travel. And that's a conversation we'd love to share with you. We've actually had guests on the show before who have emailed us either to ask a travel question or to appear as an expert. So the email address is fromertravelshow at yahoo.com. In addition, we wanted to remind everybody that we're not just here on the radio. We have a great series of guidebooks that are available wherever books are sold. You can find us uh, on the web. We have a website that we're updating several times a day called fromers.com. Lots of really interesting, fun material there, not just about travel, but about virtual travel, about cuisine, about history, about culture, about lots of things that are fun to read about. Uh, Finally, we're on social media. So do follow us. Look for the word fromers at Pinterest, on Instagram, on Twitter, and on Facebook. Now, as anybody who's been listening to the show for the last several weeks knows, we're doing things a little differently now, thanks to coronavirus. We are having one guest, one great traveler, one great travel writer, one great travel personality on per show, because we know that our listeners, and I should say I am taping this on May 6th, 6th, uh, so things may be a little different by the time you hear it, but on May 6th, Most of us are staying at home. So we want to talk about travel for the future and also about how we got here and also about how travel is part of our culture. And the best person I know to help us do that is on the line. He is Michael Stern. He is one of the founders of Road Food, which is a terrific website, roadfood.com. It's a series of books. Uh, Welcome back to the travel show, Michael. Thanks for being on. It's great to be with you, Pauline. So for people who have never heard of Road Food, tell us a little bit about how it came to be and, and what it is. Okay, first of all, what it is. What Road Food is, is a guide to restaurants that serve great regional food all around the country. I, I don't necessarily mean four-star restaurants. In fact, most Road Food recommended restaurants are fairly inexpensive because they're what just what people eat. They're not the big deal meal. But anyway, this got started back in the 1970s when Jane, my partner, and I had got out of college with some pretty fancy degrees. And much to the dismay of our parents who paid for that education, we hit the road. Uh, we wanted to be like, you know, the Jack Kerouac story. Uh, we wanted to hit the road and discover America. This was in the mid, early to mid 1970s. Um, and I, in the course of doing that, we, we wrote a book about long haul truck drivers uh, who just coincidentally, as we were writing the book, became really hot news items. Um, anyone who's old enough to remember, truckers were really big in the mid 70s. That's when gas prices were, go- were going up and there was a gas shortage and truckers were in. There were songs about them, movies about them. And our book just happened to come out at that time. So it did very well. Um, and our editor said, well, what's next? 
So we looked at each other because neither of us had planned to write about to write, period. Um, and we said, well, we thought about it. We said, you know what? We want to write a guidebook to great regional restaurants because in the course of doing that trucker book, we would occasionally come across like a catfish parlor in Mississippi or a clam shack along the coast of Massachusetts or some great custard in Wisconsin, whatever it may be. And we thought, wow, this is so great. Let's get ourselves a guidebook that tells us where to find places like this. And we looked and looked and realized there was no such guidebook. So we looked at each other and said, well, let's write one. And the funny thing is, when you think about it now, we really had to twist some arms at Random House to convince them that there were enough interesting regional restaurants in the United States of America to fill a guidebook. Um, And from the perspective of 2020, that just seems insane, ridiculous. I mean, of course there are. But at the time, in the mid-70s, American food, I don't want to say it had a bad reputation, but people just didn't think about it much. You know, if you were a foodie back then, the term didn't exist yet, but if you were somebody interested in food in the mid-1970s, it probably meant you were interested in French food or some kind of continental food or possibly Asian food. But, you know, American food had the reputation of being simply, you know, hot dogs and hamburgers and maybe some fried chicken. Um, And what we had learned in the course of traveling around the country with long haul truck drivers was that it's way more than that. You know, there are some great hamburgers and hot dogs and fried chicken, no doubt about that, but there is so much more. Um, And then in fact, what we wanted to express in the original edition of Road Food, which this was before the internet, um, was that, you know, the food of this country, the cuisine of the United States of America is as diverse and as colorful as the population. You know, it's not as codified as, say, Cordon Bleu cuisine in France, and it's certainly not as old, but like the population of the country, it has been constantly changing. Different immigrants come into this country and bring us new new types of food, and basically all of American food, except for maybe a few Native American dishes you'll find in the Southwest, all of it is kind of this hybrid cuisine of people bringing recipes or ideas from the old country and adapting them to what we have here in the way of, you know, produce and game and fish and everything else. So that was the idea of the original road food. And since then there have been, I guess, 10 or 12 editions. We're working on another one for 2021. Um, And in two, in the year 2000, um, we thought maybe this internet thing isn't just a quick fad like we thought it was. So we created roadfood.com. Yeah, and that's been something that's been interesting because it, it then it became not just you and Jane, but also people from all over the country speaking up and saying, oh, you've got to learn about this clam shack or this, you know, pizza parlor or whatever, whatever it was. Exactly. And, you know, in the old days, we would the, the tips once the first edition of Road Food came out, we would get postcards and letters with recommendations in them. And, you know, now, I mean, once we got the website going, people, there are forums there where people can post suggestions or trip reports of, you know, they just had this fantastic, you know, boysenberry pie in Idaho, you got to go eat some. So now, you know, we have more tips than we'll ever be able to to follow up on. Um, And and the other thing that's great about the website, I don't want to say anything bad about the books, because the books are great. But you know, the website as a restaurant changes or goes out of business or the menu is different, 
we can adjust that on the website. Whereas, you know, once it's in a book, it's in the book. Right, right. We are speaking with Michael Stern, one of the two founders of Road Food, also roadfood.com and the series of books. So you were saying that American cuisine is a hybrid cuisine, but are there strands that you can see in different areas? Like, for example, I know I'm not going to say I'm not going to talk about American food because that's your wheelhouse. But when I go to Italy, you can tell when you go up into the mountains, into into the real uh, mountainous part of northern Italy, the food changes dramatically because they're not using olive oil as much because they're not Mm -hmm. near olive trees. Instead, they're using lard. And so that really changes what you're tasting. How do are there pockets in the U.S. where you can see those types of uh, demarcations in a culinary way? Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, I mean, in in the big picture, for example, much of uh, the deep the deep South has a really wonderful cuisine, partly because of the tremendous influence of African cuisine. You know that that originally was brought here by the slaves, and so you know Southern cuisine, even at its most elevated level, has borrowed a whole lot from from sort of the people who, you know, who were imported to this country against their will, um, you know, and, and Southern cuisine is, is almost totally defined by, um, by that strong, strong influence of, of, of African cuisine, except when you go down even further towards the Gulf of Mexico to say Mobile or New Orleans, then you get a whole lot of more like Caribbean influence. You know, before um, you get off the African influence, how does that play out? What are the African flavors? Uh, well, for example, okra, uh, peanuts, um, you know, where, where George Washington Carver was the guy who created everything out of peanuts. I mean, many of the vegetables, um, you know, and what we now consider soul food. And, you know, one of the great things about soul food is that it was a way of um, making the most out of what you had. And so a lot of Southern cuisine, even some of the most fancy versions of it reflect that soul food attitude of making the most of what you have. Like, for example, throughout um, much of Maryland, which is on the border of the South, but one of the things you find there is stuffed ham, which is ham that's stuffed with like kind of bitter green. So you get that sweet, bitter combination. And originally stuffed ham started as kind of stuffed hog jowls, you know, lower parts of the pig, um, because that's all that was available to the cooks who used it. But it kind of went up the status ladder, and now stuffed ham in Maryland is a you know is a treasured Easter tradition. Right, very interesting. We are speaking with Michael Stern of Road Food. We're going to be taking our first break in just a couple of seconds, but don't turn that dial. We're going to talk more about American cuisine, about cuisine on the road, about eating. We love to eat with Michael Stern from Road Food after these messages. Be right back.
You're listening to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my dad, Arthur Fromer. And our guest for this hour is Michael Stern. He is one of the founders of Road Food, which is a terrific website about food that you can find along the roads of America. It's also a series of books. Uh, So, Michael, when we left off, we were discussing different regions of American cuisine and how the South is uh, uh, very much influenced by uh, the the cuisine from Africa that was brought over by enslaved peoples. And then mm-hmm. except when you go to the Gulf of Mexico, where you have more of a, a, a Mexican influence, is, is any area of the country really influenced more by what's grown and produced there than by the the say immigrant group that moved there or is it not possible to detangle in that way well i think you can detangle it to a certain degree for example all along um you know the coast of new england through and throughout much of new england a lot of what people eat there is less about recipes that they brought with them from the old country and more about you know, the fabulous bounty of seafood um, that is available to people, especially along the coast. And you get even further north, you know, where where potatoes grow so well, you have like the state of Maine is just like fanatical about potatoes. Um, and and what's one of the interesting things that we discovered actually not that long ago is that one of the things that farmers in Maine do um, to keep the soil rich for potato growing is that they um, is that they 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 grow a buckwheat um, huh. it, 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 when they're not growing potatoes, they grow buckwheat, which apparently replenishes the soil. And so when you go to the northernmost Maine along the international boundary there, every restaurant and every picnic serves what they call ploys, P-L-O-Y-E-S, which are buckwheat pancakes. They're really kind of wonderful. Um, and you can have them for breakfast like regular pancakes, or if you order pot roast, you'll get them on the side, you know, to mop up the gravy. And that's, again, that's not a reflection, as far as I know, not a reflection of any old country recipe, but just a reflection of what grows really well there. We are speaking with Michael Stern, who is the founder of Road Food, the series of books and the website. So we were talking about regional cuisine. A lot of us are home. Uh, we're either sheltering in place just in our apartments or we're getting out a bit, uh, but we're still not going to be traveling far. How can right. one experience regional cuisine while one's at home, while one is at home? What are some things you can do? Well, it's it's a it's a tricky question. I mean, I mean, it's it's my firm belief that you can't fully experience it unless you go there. You know, I mean, it, because it's not just the taste of the food; it's the way it's served, the accents of the people sitting next to you, um, just the style of service. I mean, that varies so much from region to region. Um, but the fact is that there are recipes that have a very distinct kind of regional character. And, you know, those are all cookable at home. In fact, once this, you know, coronavirus started going around and people were getting locked down, what we did was to go to the um, Road Food Facebook page and start every day we print um, something called um, uh, Quarantine Cuisine, contact-free road food at home. And we print there a recipe from a favorite road food restaurants somewhere around the country, hopefully a recipe that doesn't 
demand any really exotic ingredients, but something that you can go to the supermarket or have even delivered if that's the way you do it um, and cook and get a taste of, of wherever you want to go in the country. Like what are some of the recipes? Don't give us the recipe, but like the, the types of foods you have. Okay. Well, some are very weird because we just love them because they're so uniquely, how can I put this? They, they so express the character of the place. They are one of the first ones are printed and got a tremendous reaction was from a restaurant in Boston. It closed a few years ago called Durgan Park. Um, Durgan Park was one of the oldest restaurants in the country. Their motto was established before you were born. And they were as Yankee as a restaurant can be. They were known for baked beans and Indian pudding and Boston trot. But one of the, you know, it's like, as is typical of sort of the Yankee kitchen, they were very frugal. Um, and so the, many, many years ago, their chef decided it was terrible to make all this coffee. And at the end of the night, there was a bunch of coffee left over that they didn't serve. And they, he hated throwing it out. So he invented coffee jello, uh, which I've never seen anywhere but Durgan Park. And it's very simple. I mean, it's basically coffee, you know, made with, I mean, it's jello made with coffee and just a little bit of sugar. Because so it, it doesn't have that super sweet quality that, that, you know, most Jello has, but it's either you cut it into blocks. And then if you want it sweeter, you can put sweetened whipped cream on it. It's kind of an amazing dish. That's, that sounds delicious. I want to try it. So, so you just get plain Jello, I guess. or get- Exactly. It's like plain gelatin. You add coffee and a little, you need some sugar, um, right, right. but you make it just like you would any Jello. Wow. That's very and it looks weird because it's really like dark brown, almost black. So it's it's not the happy, you know, pastel colors that we expect that we expect from, um, you know, from most jellos. Um, but I, I'll tell you a few. I mean, a few of the other recipes that, again, have a really kind of regional character to them. We have Elvis Presley's favorite pound cake recipe that was given to him by the woman who used to make it for him and bring it to Graceland every Christmas. Um we have red flannel hash. That's another favorite, you know, New England dish made from last night's boiled dinner. And because it, it's made with beets, it, it turns everything the color of red flannel. Um, we have West Indies salad from the Mobile Bay, which is very simple, but wonderful. It's, it's basically marinated crab meat with a few sweet onions that they serve in every seafood restaurant in and around Mobile Bay. Um, there's peanut soup from Virginia. Um, uh, uh, porridge from Minnesota. That's a great one. It's actually a, a, a recipe from a restaurant in Minneapolis called Hell's Kitchen. The, um, the chef of which was a real kind of, uh, he was, he was really devoted to the early settlers of that area. And he was looking at some of the, um, accounts of travels by some of the early explorers. And he found a recipe for, a Cree Indian dish um, made with wild rice, and he kind of he kind of fiddled with it and made this wonderful thing called Menomen porridge, which is like one of the greatest breakfast cereals you could ever have. And it's, if you can get the wild rice, it's an amazing dish. Oh, it sounds amazing! All right, we have to take another break, uh, but don't turn that dial. We'll be more back with more with Michael Stern of Road Food after these messages.
listening to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer on the phone with my father, Arthur Fromer. He's sheltering in place elsewhere because it's May 6th when we're taping this. And we also have Michael Stern on the line. I always so enjoy talking to Michael. He's one of the founders of Road Food. You may know the website, roadfood.com. It's also a series of books about great regional diners, drive-ins, you know, all kinds of clam shacks, different types of restaurants around the U.S. As we get towards summer, I've been getting a lot of questions saying, how can we do any kind of travel this year? And I've been saying you may be able to do a road trip safely, but it's going to be tricky with restaurants. But there are a lot of types of restaurants where the seating is open air, right? Where you can have road food experience, but not in an enclosed space with too many people around you. That's exactly right. And obviously it all depends on, you know, what the rules and regulations are wherever you're going. But um, a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of types of restaurants where social distancing is very easy. I mean, the most obvious example is a drive-in restaurant. Um, and in fact, there's a restaurant not too far from where I live that years what, ago what was in fact, in? I, I'm in um, Aiken, South Carolina. Oh, okay. Right on the Sorry. border, I'm just a few miles from Augusta, Georgia. And there's a restaurant in um, North Augusta, South Carolina, that years ago started as a drive-in, you know, with car hop service and everything like that. And and they, after, after a while, they phased that out, and it just became more of a normal restaurant uh, where you went in and sat down. But now they've gone back to car hop service, and it's like an, it's amazingly crowded. And, you know, you can... Um, you you never have to leave your car. You never the food is obviously everything is served in disposable containers. So it's um, it's an opportunity to really get a taste of of this great drive-in fare that um, that where you run no risk of of you know being too close to anybody else. Um, and there are, there are other kinds of restaurants that I think where that seems more possible. There are a lot of barbecues throughout most mostly the South. This is not true of barbecues in the Midwest, but a lot of Southern barbecues that have picnic table seating, you know, where you go through the line and, you know, and fill up a tray and then go out to a picnic table. A lot of them, you can't go through the line anymore, but you can go there and they will present you a plate and then you can go eat it at a picnic table. Um, in New England, a lot of seafood restaurants, um, you know, have, uh, outdoor, you know, um, seating on, on the pier overlooking the water. And I think some of them are, are accommodating the whole social distancing thing. So you can get a taste of that as well. Um, I think there are a lot of, um, like, uh, a, a lot of hot dog places and hamburger joints where, you know, there, many of them, in fact, are summer only restaurants that open up in the summer because in fact, they have no dining rooms. And the only way people eat there is to take their food to a picnic table. And there are several of those throughout New England, in fact. Um, so you got obviously you have to plan ahead. If you are going to be traveling, I would, I would, what I would do is get a copy of Road Food or look it up on the on the uh, internet and call ahead because a lot of rest, some restaurants are doing this, some are not. I mean, I don't have to. I, I, it's kind of a sad thing, but there are some kind of town cafe type restaurants where social distancing is virtually impossible. You know, and and I hate to see this happen, but. 
there are some that just can't survive this. You know? um, that was going to be my next question. Uh, there's been a lot of worry, uh, rightly mm -hmm. so, I think, that we could lose a lot of the mom and pop restaurants due to COVID-19, that uh, this, this global pause is going to kill all of these really quirky, fun smaller places and leave in their wake only chain restaurants. Do you think that's mm. dire a prediction? I, I think it is a little dire. I, I wish I had a more optimistic, you know, solution to it, but because to some degree, I, you're absolutely right. And I've seen it happen. People, you know, write to me all the time and say, this place has closed because, you know, a little mom and pop town cafe um, I don't have to tell you this runs on a very slim profit margin. And if they are told they are not able to do business for a couple of weeks, that's the end of them, you know, um, and I've seen it happen. I mean, on the other hand, I've seen a lot of restaurants um, and I'm not talking about chain restaurants, a lot of independent restaurants that um, that have been very creative uh, in terms of, of dealing with the fact that they cannot seat people in their seats. There's a, a pizzeria not too far from me. Um, and, you know, pizza is one of those types of food that is very accustomed to carry out. So I don't think they're going to be as hurt as much as a regular, you know, three meal a day restaurant. But there's a pizzeria near me that, you know, normally it's kind of close quarters inside. And what they now do is you can, you can go there and get a pizza to take out, but they also offer um, pizza kits. So you go there, you get the dough and whatever toppings you want. So you can go home and have some fun actually making the pizza at home. It comes with all the instructions you need. And so that I think there are people being more creative about it. But I do think, um, sad to say, that there are going to be a lot of those mom and pop restaurants that cannot survive the enforced closing. Well, I thought that California had a really good plan. California is going to be uh, using at FEMA money, state money, and local money to have restaurants deliver three meals a day to at-risk seniors, and they're paying the mm -hmm. restaurants a decent amount. And so that way they, they help their seniors, and they may be able to keep that industry alive. I'm hoping you know, that, that would be great. Yeah, pick it up. I, I haven't heard any other uh, states discussing it, but to, to my mind... I haven't either. I mean, there are a lot of restaurants um, that I'm aware of that that have instituted delivery. But, you know, let's be honest. I mean, if you're like a, a fairly popular restaurant and, you know, you can seat maybe two, three hundred people in a night, you're not going to be delivering two, three hundred meals. Um, it's, it's, it's highly unlikely. Yeah, we have to take another break, but don't turn that dial. We'll be right back with more. We're speaking with Michael Stern of Road Food. More after these messages. Welcome back to the Frober Travel Show. We are talking food on the road. Even if you're not hitting the road anytime soon, uh, there's still ways to enjoy it. And we're coming upon the summer season. Uh, so looking ahead to summer, what are some of the delights that you can get at road food restaurants around the United States in this season that you can't get so much in others? Well, as I was saying before, I mean, a lot of, uh, there are a lot of, summer only uh hamburger joints hot dog joints 
um, seafood shacks all along the coast um, that only open in the, that are open only in the summer, um, simply partly because they have they're so small that they have no indoor seating whatsoever. So they they can only operate when they can seat people outdoors. And I think most of those are um, are doing pretty are, are you know will do pretty well this summer. I just in fact I just literally. Uh, an hour ago, got a notice from a wonderful place on the sh- up on the North Shore of Massachusetts called the Oxford Creamery, uh, which is an ice cream place, as the name suggests. But they also happen to have one of the best lobster rolls I've tasted anywhere. Um, and the note from them says, "We are going to be open this summer. However, for safety's sake, we're not. You can't walk in and place an order. You have to call in an order. When you arrive, we'll bring it out to you to one of our picnic tables." So, you know, they're kind of, they're working, working around to do it safely. But I have a feeling a, a lot of those mostly takeout restaurants are going to be able to do that. Well, I know that uh, the big chains are using their apps for people right. to call in orders to Shake Shack or Starbucks or what have you. And that way you have this no touch delivery. But I was actually right. thinking about, you know, what's growing, what's, I always think of summer corn you know, you never have corn on the cob, or I don't think you should, except in summer, because uh, it's going <laughs> right. to be so much better then. Are there any things that are growing or that will just be better in summer? Well, there, there are so many. I'm, the first thing that comes to my mind is Michigan cherries uh, up in northern Michigan. That is cherry country. And I don't know how I don't know how um, the coronavirus is going to affect the fact that when you drive along the 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 eastern shore of Lake Michigan, up towards the Straits of Mackinac, there, um, there are countless little roadside stands where people sell these big, plump, kind of firm-bodied, delicious cherries. Um, and what's really great, you know, normally you expect a cherry to be kind of cool um, you know, out of the refrigerator, or, you know, at least sort of room temperature. And a lot of these stands in the summer, in particular, will have the cherries out. So you get them and you put one in your mouth. And it's kind of shocking because it's a little bit warm mm. from being in the sun, but you bite into it. And when that warm cherry juice bursts in your mouth, it's one of the greatest food sensations I can think of. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I was, I've been in northern Michigan for the last couple of years because we've done broadcasts of the show from there. And one of my favorite things was the National Cherry Festival, which they had to cancel uh, this yeah. week. It was such a... a all-American fun event. Mm-hmm. I, I totally bombed at the pit spitting contest. I, like a 10-year-old behind me, I spit really hard. My spit sprayed forward 10 feet, but the pit dropped and hit my sandal. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you're a failure as a pit spitter. All right. uh, I'm a failure as a pit spitter, but I, I would second your, your uh, great restaurants in that area of the country, too. Yes. Surprisingly. Yes. Uh, what is, and- a, sorry, go ahead. I was just thinking then when you go over the over the straits into the upper peninsula, that's like a whole culinary world unto itself, you know, where the 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 um the pasty, the Cornish pasty is actually more popular than hamburgers. And every every restaurant, every roadside stand makes these wonderful, you know, pasties, which are kind of like um almost like a stew, beef stew in a pastry crust that's baked, um, originally made for miners because it was an easy lunch to take down into the mine with them. But they're popular throughout the Upper Peninsula and really, and some of them are really good. Not all, but some are just great. And does that come from the people in that region being from the British Isles or? Yes. 
Huh. Yeah, it comes from the British Isles, and I, and I always just assumed that was it because it's generally called a Cornish pasty from you know Cornwall. Yeah. But um, I did some more reading on it, and in fact, there are a lot of um, apparently there are a bunch of French pe- French people who settled there as well, and it, it they're, they they are um, meat pies are part of their cu- culinary heritage as well. So it, it is mostly British, and in fact, several of the really good pasty restaurants up there do have like a British theme, you know, the uh, Union Jack will be up on the wall and stuff like that. But I think it's also uh, it's also a French influence. Thing. And I guess the French people were there because they were fur trappers originally. I'm wondering how they got to that. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Okay. You know what else is up there, though? But just while we're on the subject, one of the things that I I knew about pasties and I read about the French, one of the other things that you you do not expect up in that part of the world, as well as in West Virginia, two places where you do not expect to find really good Italian food, Um, because uh, many of the people who settled there were um, were people who were who, who were into mining, but also were there to build the railroads. And um, one of the things that just amazed me is uh, how, how great the Italian food is up in the northern peninsula of Michigan, but also throughout much of West Virginia, where uh, I, who would think that West Virginia would be a load of great Italian Please food, but on. it is. We have to take another break, but don't turn that down. <laughs> we'll be right back. Well, this hour has flown by. We've got about three minutes and 30 seconds left. Uh, So I'm going to ask you the same question I've been asking all of our guests on this show. Why will it be important for people to get back out on the road when all of this is over? What 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 is intrinsic in the travel experience uh, that, that you think makes it maybe not a trivial pursuit, but something that people should consider doing? Well, from my point of view, as somebody who writes about food, I think what's really important about getting on the road, even though, as I said, you can cook these recipes at home, but to experience regional foods and the way people eat them and serve them and talk about them um, is is not just about eating. It's about our culture in this country. I mean, anyone who grew up anywhere in this country, city, country, wherever, um, has something that was part of their culinary heritage. It's part of them. Um, and, you know, it's, whether it's, you know, what you ate on Sunday for Sunday supper or the sweet shop that you went after school. I mean, there are all these kind of culinary rituals that really, in many ways, define who we are. Um, and that's something you can't get anywhere but actually going to the town cafe, going to the barbecue, going to the seafood shack. It's there where you really encounter America's soul from a culinary perspective. Yeah. And you see all of the different strands that went into making mm-hmm. that soul because we are a, a country of immigrants and proudly so. I, well, I'm proud mm-hmm. of it, at least. Uh, well, thank you so much, Michael. If you want to learn more about road food, go to roadfood.com. Uh, Michael also has some great books also called Road Food. 
And uh, am I missing anything, Michael? Should Is there another way to get in touch with you guys? Do you have social? Um, roadfood.com is the best way. You can send me a direct message at, uh, via roadfood.com. And there's also the uh, Roadfood Facebook page, which is pretty active. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, well, before we go, we're very active online, too. So let me just remind everybody uh, that we are Fromers, as in the Fromers guidebooks, uh, and that we think travel is an activity that brings to the forefront history and cuisine and culture. And so in these, these times of less travel, that's what we're concentrating on at Fromers.com, which makes the site so much fun to use. Uh, so we hope you'll visit us, visit us there. We have some great uh, galleries of photographs from all over the world with erudite text about the history of those places. We have really fun covers of fake Fromer guides up right now. They're satirical covers of, of how to how to travel in your own home, basically. They're the quarantine editions of the Fromer guides, and they're absolutely hilarious. We hope you'll visit us and see that. We have, like road food, we have recipes for great hotel cocktails, for hotel desserts, because apparently a lot of famous desserts were created at hotels. Uh, so, we hope you'll visit us at Fromers.com. We hope you'll pick up a Fromer guidebook. And as we always say at the end of this show, to those who are traveling, a hearty bon voyage. Bon voyage. <laughs> <laughs>